What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And you have just stepped inside my captain's quarters, my weekly gaming update show where I talk about my favorite gaming news topic of the past week, discuss what games I've been playing, give tips on some of those games, as well as issue a weekly relevant gaming related decree. This week, it's all about my thoughts on the Xbox leak. So let's talk about it and dive right into the episode with my news catch of the week. Gamers, this past week, Xbox was in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons, depending on which perspective you look at it from. Obviously, I'm sure by now you've all heard and seen and read that there were some massive leaks at the house that Xbox built, and it was actually confirmed to be Xbox's own fault. There is just a few missteps here along the way, and next thing you know, the entire world has now laid eyes on what the potential future plans are for Xbox as a brand. And I'm here this week to talk about a lot of these different potential plans and just a lot of things that I'm honestly excited for. Some things I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. But we're here to talk about all of it. And the first thing I want to talk about is probably the most controversial thing that came out of one of the emails that was involved in all these leaks. And that was the email regarding Phil Spencer talking about Nintendo. You know, the house that Mario built, as it were. And Many other franchises like Zelda and Metroid. Obviously, you gamers are listening to this show. I know for a fact you're going to know who Nintendo is. But the fact that Phil Spencer in these emails was talking about having just conversated with Nintendo about potentially merging with Microsoft and Xbox and how much of a, a career milestone that would be and what a great day that would be for, for him, for Phil Spencer and for the company and just... It was a very interesting email and a very interesting read. If you haven't read it, I definitely suggest going ahead and, and checking it out and looking it up online and reading it because I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a few things here and talk about specifics that stood out to me. And really just him talking about the fact that Nintendo, almost from the perspective that they should see the benefit in joining Xbox and having the two brands merge together and releasing their games on Xbox's console. Now, Myself and a great friend of the show, Graveyard Gamer from the Graveyard Gamer podcast right here on Spotify and many other podcast platforms. Check his show out. If you like mine, you'll like his. I promise you that. Now, him and I were talking about this, and it was just like, come on, man. Like, How are you going to sit there as the third-place console manufacturer here? You know, third behind, obviously. Number one right now, technically, Nintendo. Number two would be Sony with PlayStation. So how are you going to sit there at number three until number one, bro? You need to be with me. <laughs> You're missing out on not being together with me. So that to us was just absolutely mind-boggling. The fact that Phil Spencer somehow was delusional enough to believe that that was actually a, a, a logical statement to make. I, I don't know where he was coming from with that or, or why he felt that that made sense. But I don't really feel like if somebody is the very much easily in first place, why they are going to look at the third place person or in this case console and think, man, you know what? We're, we're in first, but we're really missing out because we're not merged with that third place company. We're, we're missing something. So I just thought that was very interesting. I know a lot of people jumped on that one online and that was one of the biggest 
stories from this whole leak that was circulating online. Now, as we continue to look into some of the other details, honestly, one of the stories that I was very excited about was the confirmation that at least at one point in time when these emails circulated, there was some mid-gen refreshes coming to Xbox. So I don't know if you guys had realized it or not, but somewhat recently, over the course of the year, the calendar year, 2023 that we're in, Phil Spencer had gone on record as saying, yeah, nah, you know, Xbox, the, the Series X and Series S, there is going to be, there's not going to be a mid-gen refresh. There's not going to be a mid-gen upgrade to us. The Series S is going to be the entry level to next gen, and the Series X is what we would consider our mid-gen upgrade if we were to have one. That, to me, makes no sense at all. Like, I'm sorry. You were at launch in 2020 highlighting the Xbox Series X as your flagship console, and you're going to tell me three years later, yeah, there's no reason for a mid-gen refresh because we look at the Series X essentially as our mid-gen refresh. What? Now, I didn't think that that made any sense at the time, but flash forward now, you know, I, I did believe that there was not going to be a mid-gen refresh. However naively that may have been, because now seeing these emails, and let me just put into perspective, uh, most of these emails were years ago or w within one to three years of current times. So they're older emails for sure. But the fact is, especially when I get into the details here of what these mid-gen refresh consoles and uh, services are supposed to be, I mean, there is a lot of detail here. And I'm sorry, but you don't create a slideshow for a PowerPoint and have all these details ironed out if you're just going to completely trash it and trash the idea and move on and just choose not to do it. I don't believe for a second that they're not going to follow through with what we've seen in these leaks on the mid-gen refresh. So to start with the Series X, the Series X, the new version of it, the upgraded version of the Series X is actually codenamed Brooklyn. And it is a little bit more compact than that original Series X. And its design is one that I actually really like. It's a cylindrical design as opposed to the squared off design of the current Series X. So I do like and really dig the look of it. Now, the one thing that the original Xbox Series X has that the Series S didn't was a disk drive. The Series S is all digital. Well, this Brooklyn Series X also lacks a disk drive. So that is the big deal that a lot of people were talking about is like, oh man, an all digital future. You know, Microsoft is trying to push the point that, you know, they started to try to drive home back in the launch of the Xbox One. Well, yeah, sure. It looks like that's a good possibility. I, you know, I personally, I would prefer to have choice. That's why, especially with like the PS5, for instance, I could have gotten for a hundred bucks cheaper, the digital only PS5. But I wanted to have that option to play a disc if I so chose to do so. Well, Brooklyn, if it comes out, it's also going to feature two terabytes of internal storage, which is nice because the internal of the Series X currently is only one terabyte with options for expandable memory, of course, with their storage cards, which are just frustrating. But that's another conversation. Now, the 16 gig of RAM is going to be what's internal and it will be 100% recyclable packaging. So that's very interesting. But the biggest thing for me was the console design, the cylindrical design, as well as the fact that it will be digital only. So very interesting to see how that pans out, if that is something that we will actually see uh, here in the near future, because the Series X upgrade is supposed to be quoted in this PowerPoint as coming out in October of 2024. So we still would have a year before this would even potentially come to market. But 
the Series S is not being left behind because they are apparently, according to these documents, working on an upgrade of the Series S, codenamed Elwood. And the Series S upgrade will include 10 gigs of RAM. The pricing is going to remain the same as the current Series S. So we're not going to see any price change on that, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. And both consoles, according to this, are to be officially announced next summer. Now, the release for Elwood... The Series S upgrade is supposed to release in August of next year. So it's a two-month window of difference of time between the release of the Series S upgrade and the Series X upgrade. So pretty uh, pretty interesting that they chose to release Elwood before the Series X or Brooklyn. So we'll see what actually happens there. Now, it wasn't just these two console mid-gen refresh upgrades that was in this document. It was also a new Xbox system that is supposed to be coming out. We've already known that there's a new Xbox in the works, just like we know the PS6 is in the works. But this console is said to be, according to these documents again, a next-generation hybrid game platform with development kits slated to launch in 2027. Now, the thing is... When it talks about being a hybrid console, what does that mean? So essentially that is Microsoft is really going to try to push the digital only and have a a cloud-based gaming system along with what we currently know as a gaming console. And according to this, the document that you can view, it mentions a thin operating system for a sub $99 consumer or handheld device which is implying Microsoft actually may release a handheld device that's dedicated to cloud gaming. So obviously we have PlayStation that's just announced their PlayStation portal that they're supposedly releasing this year. And that's kind of basically a way to play your do remote play on a dedicated device via streaming. And Microsoft has been trying to push xCloud and has done so through cell phones and tablets and whatnot for years now. So this looks like they're looking for a $100 device that you can buy that will allow you to purely play off of this handheld device. There was a lot of different pictures. There was a one-handed controller. There was all kinds of different things. I mean, it was just very, very interested. A mobile controller that's kind of... If you've ever seen a backbone for your cell phones that you can use to actually make it feel like you're holding a controller or a handheld dedicated gaming device, but you're using your phone, it's very similar to what those look like. Now, it also shows a brand new controller, like a regular Xbox controller that would be utilized, I would assume, with the next-gen console. And, I mean, gamers, if you listen to my show, you know I'm the controller freak. I am obsessed with controllers, uh, any types of variations, colors, themes, whatever. And this controller has me very, very excited. So it's currently under the works with the code name Sable, which uh, actually, according to Xbox, is going to feature direct-to-cloud connectivity. So that's very interesting as well, so that you can play straight from the cloud using that controller, which is very enticing, I'll, I'll be uh, to be honest with you. Now, the other thing to me is the fact that it's a beautiful-looking design. I mean, there is uh, just a more streamlined design look to it. It also has a gyroscopic uh, control pattern and feel to it for just the different movements within the internal workings of the controller. And I just, I'm actually really excited for it because it looks like they're doing a lot of things as far as haptics. They're, you know, kind of taking a cue from the DualSense controller. And while the Series X controllers are fantastic, in my opinion, you know, there is still something about those adaptive triggers on the PlayStation 5 and the DualSense. 
So I think that their plan is to try to do something akin to the dual sense with this next upgrade. It looks like it's also kind of a two-tone controller, maybe insinuating somewhat like the PS5, you know, that, that launched as a two-tone console, black and white, and the controller was also black and white. So maybe it's kind of insinuating what we can expect uh, of different options maybe for the, the next gen console. And one final piece that jumped out there was the fact that Elder Scrolls 6 was confirmed in these emails as being Xbox exclusive. You know, for a long time, we have wondered whether or not these, the game and the series was going to continue on, as well as Fallout, on uh, PlayStation platforms, really, is really and truly where we've been kind of waiting for that confirmation one way or the other. The assumption has always been there, like, yeah, they're probably going to make those exclusive. But in these emails, there was emails talking about the fact that that was the plan, is to make Elder Scrolls Six exclusive to Xbox. Now, obviously, I don't feel like they would de deter from doing that, and I have always kind of felt like they probably end up doing that anyways, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. I feel like series like Elder Scrolls and Fallout, they should continue to have those available to players and gamers who have been able to play them on whatever platform they chose over the last couple of decades. So to have those games now and experiences limited to an Xbox console, I don't think it's kind of fair, but I get it. It's a business. You know, I understood Starfield, even though it had started development as a PS5 game, it was never a series that had been around for PS5 gamers or PlayStation gamers to get attached to. So that's where I kind of can understand and be okay with Starfield being Xbox exclusive. But we'll see as time goes on. You know, there's still been no official confirmation. Again, these are all emails. And Phil Spencer's response to all these emails has pretty much been like, hey, look, uh, you know, we've seen and heard all of the feedback and Yes, we understand and recognize that this happened. Uh, you know, it sucks that it happened, basically. But just going to remind you, these are all old emails and not necessarily relevant to anything that we're doing anymore. So a lot of things that we are still working on, we will look forward to confirming things and announcing things when we are ready to do so. So obviously, he wasn't confirming or denying anything in any of these leaked reports. But just kind of trying to play with everybody's emotions of like, ah, just remember, these are, you know, old emails, so they, they may be valid, they may not be valid anymore. At the end of the day, I just think it's a, a big mess up on Xbox's part for how, how did they allow this to happen? Like, how did this slip through the cracks? And then what do I, what does it mean for Sony? I mean, Sony has kind of now gotten an inside look at what Xbox's potential plans were. So even if it's not what they do, I feel like it's going to be similar or close to what they end up doing. So Sony still has, in my opinion, a little bit of an advantage here to be like, oh, okay. So 2028 is when they had said they wanted to release the next-gen console. Maybe that's our target then. That's where we got to have the PS6 ready by. If they were planning on having it in 29, now it's like, okay, well, we got to ramp up work on this because we want to be launched the same time as Xbox. I don't know if they're as worried about it or as concerned, but I'm sure they don't want to give any kind of edge to Xbox because they've been kind of PlayStation has been holding down that that number two spot, or at least if you look at just PlayStation and Xbox, that number one spot between the two of them for, for years now, for generations between PS4 and then now PS5. Uh, they have been in that driver's seat for quite a while. Uh, it started out kind of neck and neck at the beginning of the generation, but then kind of slipped away from Xbox uh, once the... Uh, in stock availability for PS5s were at a good spot. But regardless, I'm very excited to see if any of this stuff is actually true. I probably, I would need more details on the mid-gen refresh to see if whether or not I would actually get one. 
I already have an expansion card for my Series X, so I have two terabytes total of memory. But I mean, internal memory that doesn't really do a whole lot for me for me to warrant purchasing probably what would be another five six hundred dollar console, especially if you tell me within four years of that, there's going to be a next gen console that comes out, the, the next Xbox. It's like, well, if it doesn't do a whole lot technologically for me, I'm probably not going to worry about picking one up. Now, when it comes to the controller, I mean, I honestly, I would like the fact that I, I doubt they would release it separately before the next console, but it'd be kind of cool if at some point over the next five years now until 2028, if that is in fact when they do start the next gen, if they did release the controller as something, as an upgrade to what the current Xbox controller is, or if it launched with the mid-gen upgrade for the Series X and S. Either way, lots of crazy amounts of content here to talk about and to think on and to speculate but obviously nothing is concrete. It's all just kind of, well, this is stuff they talked about a few years ago and plans they did have at one point in time. But will any of it actually see the light of day? Gamers, we only have to wait and have time to tell us. Now let's go open up my captain's log and see what games I've been playing. Gamers, this past week, there was actually a decent amount of new releases and a game that I got back to that I want to talk to you about first before getting to my continued progress and Starfield. And the first game I want to discuss with you is none other than Lies of P, the steampunk reimagined version of the Pinocchio story. And it's got that Souls-like gameplay. The demo's been out now for a little while, and I mean, they've been really previewing this game, I feel like, pretty well over the course of of time since its first initial announcement. And I mean, honestly, just the premise itself always intrigued me. Like, oh, this is uh, Pinocchio? Like, what are we doing here? This is really interesting to kind of go with an adult angle on this legend, if you will. So I got to say that the fact that it was on Game Pass is what really made it uh, accessible for me to play because with Starfield out and then with Spider-Man 2 and Alan Wake 2 and Assassin's Creed Mirage, all three of those coming out in October, I just knew that I wasn't going to have time to continue to add more and more games to my playlist. But with Game Pass, it made it a little bit easier because I didn't have to come out the pocket an extra 70 bucks. So I'm glad that I was able to try it out. I did put about five hours into the game, and I just wanted to kind of share my opinions of my time with it with you listeners. Now, I, as I stated, it is a Souls-like, so it's not going to be... In my opinion, I didn't feel it was as difficult or challenging, if that makes any sense, as, say, Bloodborne or Dark Souls or Demon Souls even. I have put a ton of time into Demon Souls, and if you've listened to me for the last few years, then you have shared in my experience with Demon Souls. Really, really love that game. Would love to get back to it at some point in time. But bottom line, not a discredit to Liza P, but one thing that I really appreciated when I did play the demo was the fact that they allow you to kind of replenish your health items, uh, the ones that will replenish your health throughout the course of your play. And you do that by just uh, simply striking enemies. Now, obviously, that means you got to get in combat with them. But at the end of the day, I, I feel like it's if you use all of what the healing item is, you can still replenish it without having to buy something or acquire gold or souls or whatever the case may be in order to buy the item. You don't have to worry about that. You just fight enemies and every hit gives you a different increase to this little tube that once it fills up, it'll give you one more of your health item 
to be able to use again. So I love that aspect of it. Uh, it makes a little bit more, makes it a little bit easier to me at least to know that I have that option there. There is a dodge and a parry option, which is one thing with the Souls-like games that I always uh, was frustrated with is that some of them do not have a, a dodge button. And I get it. It adds to the challenge of it. And for some people, that may be great. But for me, that's not my preference. So Liza P, you got dodge and parry. You got healing items that can replenish without requiring you to go through all kinds of craziness and time to get more healing items. Now, I will say for the most part, your items, like the healing items, they also replenish with your respawn. And that was one thing that you don't get in Demon Souls or Dark Souls or uh, none of that. Do they allow you to have your items that you used? Say you're in a boss fight and you use three different health potions and you die. And when you respawn, you don't have those health potions anymore. You're going to have to either go back to the same locations where that you found them or build up the souls or the money or whatever the currency is in order to buy some more. I love the fact that Liza P didn't do that to you. Now, I will say different items are still used and do not replenish. And those are like weapon thrown items. Uh, there's different grenade types. They're not necessarily grenades, but they're kind of like exploding electric uh, grenades, if you will, or different things like that that you can throw at enemies. Cogwheels that will take off different levels of damage depending on the different type of enemy that you're attacking. So there are uh, items that will not replenish when you respawn, but the health items, the those items are what replenish those are what really made a big difference for me uh, that I appreciated that Lies of P did. So first off, I got to say, in addition to all these different gameplay, quality of life, uh, I would say, uh, aspects of the game that I appreciate, the game is just gorgeous. I mean, graphically, it's just an absolutely gorgeous game. I am playing it on Xbox Series X on a, an LG OLED TV, so I'm sure that you know doesn't hurt. But at the end of the day, I mean, the details and the graphics are, I mean, just insane. The details within the town of or city of Krat that you explore, K-R-A-T, Krat is how they pronounce it in the game. So the city of Krat is, is absolutely gorgeous. It's very, like I said, kind of steampunk mixed with a 19th century European kind of look to it. And yeah, there's some neon thrown in there and just... I don't know, overall, the steampunk vibe is, is very, very much in your face in a good way. All the enemy types are essentially mechanized puppets, uh, obviously playing on the whole puppet theme here with Pinocchio. But the steampunk theme is very much transparent throughout the course of your play. But I loved it. I absolutely loved the character models, the enemy character models, uh, the bosses. They are very unique. I've only fought one true boss. And then there's been some other more challenging enemies than your regular cannon fodder that you come across throughout the course of a stage or an area. And I will say that for the most part, that is another thing that I've appreciated is that the enemies, they kind of, you have most of the enemies that you encounter are not going to give you too much uh, of a problem. Uh, you can sneak up behind enemies with stealth attacks and, and take them out with one you know, combo slash of, of swipes with your sword. I did like the fact that too, speaking of that sword, you can also choose the kind of gameplay or combat that you'd like at the beginning of the game, whether you want it to be uh, a balanced or more aggressive or more stealth oriented, if you will. And I chose balanced gameplay just because I feel like in this kind of a game, I'd rather have a, a, an option and feel confident either way, whether I'm going aggressive or I'm trying to be more reserved and stealthy. So I definitely appreciated that option there. 
And the combat itself, I mean, there's a lock-on option, which if, again, you've listened to my show, you know I'm very adamant about having a lock-on uh, option in most third-person action games. Uh, and this is, is one of them that does it really well, and you can flick the analog stick between different enemies when there's multiple enemies, which is crucial for me as well. So I didn't have any issues with the combat. I thought it was great. It was actually pretty fast and fluid. A lot of these Souls-like games, they rely on the combat to be very kind of slow and methodical. And while there is an element of that to this game, I didn't feel like it was a requirement, if that makes sense. You know, games like Bloodborne and Demon Souls specifically, I can speak to and say, I felt like they really kind of wanted you to stand there and kind of trade blows or time dodges perfectly with your enemies, even just a random cannon fodder enemy and what is considered, I guess, in those games, cannon fodder, even though they could, I mean, they could tear you up still in one or two hits, depending on who the enemy was. Whereas in this game, again, I mean, you don't want to get stuck in a corner with two or three enemies because they will rip you apart. But for the most part, uh, even just regular uh, attacks, you could probably take out your basic enemy in, in two to three swipes, depending on the enemy. Now, there are different enemies that have thrown items and uh, long javelin-type spears that can they can charge at you with, and just different things like that that can get annoying and frustrating at, at different times, especially the ones that throw the little electric grenades at you, because, man, I'm sitting there trying to go down a ladder at one point, and as I'm going, as I press A to interact with the ladder to start the animation to climb on and climb on down, I get hit with the electric grenade, and I'm just like, come on, man, and that drained like a fourth of my health bar. So either way, there are different things here or there. But overall, I thought the combat was great. The different options that you have uh, with the sword and with the different combos and, and dodging and parrying, all that stuff really works well together. And I got to, by the end of my play session, be able to be very confident and, and appreciative of the throne weapon types, like the grenades and really maximizing the use of those, really more so in those kind of what I would consider like a sub-boss enemy type. There's one that I could not get past, though, towards the end of my play session. But, uh, you know, as far as the story and things like that, I mean, graphics, controls, sound, I mean, the, the, the music, the voice acting that is there, all that is great, top-notch. And as far as the story, there's not a whole lot that I can really pick up on yet. I mean, there are some notes that are left around that you can leave, read that tell you and kind of explain a little bit about what was going on. And, you know, essentially there was this big uh, kind of like an expo show that was going to be a huge thing for the city of Krat. And it was about technology and, and about these automatons or these robotic puppets that were going to essentially they're like slaves, if you will. They do all the labor. They do all the cleaning and, and those kinds of things all throughout the city of Krat. And, and it was going to be this major showcase is what they uh, are referring to it as within the game world. This showcase to show off the technological advances of Krat. And uh, essentially right before all this goes down, of course, as fate would have it, the uh, the machines turn on their human creators and essentially start just mass murdering everybody in the city uh, except for those few who may be able to get out and get a, get away now geppetto just like in the old story has created pinocchio and there's something unique and special about pinocchio which is why this almost like a an ethereal fairy or fair I, I guess it's supposed to be like the fairy godmother from the story she is the one that kind of reaches out to you and gives you life and and tasks you uh, as the only being who's able to kind of mix in between both worlds, because you're not just a puppet and you're not yet a real boy. So you're the only one that can kind of intermingle and uh, find the salvation that the city of Krat needs. But first, as of right now, I'm trying to reach Geppetto. 
And in my process of doing so, you know, the storm that started out at the beginning of the game was just beautiful and great and fun to enjoy. The uh, hotel that you go into that's honestly, it makes me think of John Wick and its hotel where everybody kind of goes and meets and it's not as busy and active as that hotel if you've seen those movies. But my point is you got a shop, a guy who can buy items from, you got a a female character who can upgrade your weapons and gear. You have the fairy godmother who's there with you. You can talk to about different things, and there's just a lot to do there. So I thoroughly enjoyed everything that was on hand, and I'll be honest, I could easily see that game being one that is a focal game for me if it wasn't for all these other games that came out. But I did have a great time in the five hours I played, and I definitely recommend it if you are a fan of the Souls-like genre. So next up, I want to talk about a brief stint that I had in Mortal Kombat 1. As a lifelong fan of the Mortal Kombat series, I get excited every time one of these games releases. Even though, to be honest, there is just a lot of familiarity from game to game. Not to take anything away from them, because I have loved every single one, for the most part, that have come out over the years, and especially this last string of Mortal Kombat games, I would say that started with 9 is what I'll consider that, kind of when they rebooted it this the, the last time. It was Mortal Kombat 9, or just known as Mortal Kombat, and then you had 10, and then 11, and then now here we are again with Mortal Kombat 1, which if you didn't know, at the end of Mortal Kombat 11's game and DLC, Liu Kang essentially just completely recreated the entire universe. So he, and that's pretty much how this game starts out. It explains to you that Liu Kang recreated all the different universes and galaxies and all the different realms and just kind of went through the process of doing that. But he also left out their free will and choice and just kind of hoped that those residents of the realms would, you know, make the right choices. Well, Obviously, there is still the Mortal Kombat tournament that has to be held every century or so, and it has come time to perform this tournament again. So at the beginning of the game, if you're playing the story mode like me, and that was that's typically, I would say, my highlight is getting to that story mode and seeing what new story details that the, the NetherRealm Studios has been able to come up with for this game. Because in my opinion, the stories are always really fun and uh, enjoyable within these games. And Mortal Kombat 1 was no different. I mean, it was definitely really weird because seeing these characters that I've known for years represented in such a different way. If you didn't know, they had already said well before the game was released that all the characters were kind of being reimagined and re-envisioned for this game. And definitely you can tell that Sub-Zero, Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Scorpion, but they're still very different, if that makes sense. I, I gotta tell you, though, again, I'm playing this game on the Xbox Series X. Woo! The graphics, man. The graphics and animations in this game, not just on the characters, but also in the backgrounds of the environments that you're fighting in. Oh my god, it is just absolutely insane. The physics... The interactivity between the fighters and the items in the environment, the people and the reactions in the environment, if there's some of them there when you're fighting. I mean, just and in general, just to look at it, it's just like, holy cow, this is an absolutely gorgeous game. So graphically, it's great. Control-wise, it controls excellent. I always prefer to use the D-pad. I always have for, for years. I've tried and dabbled with the analog stick over the years, and I just never like it as much as I do the D-pad. I don't feel like I have as good of a control that I would like to have over the character movement. It feels like it's looser and not as tight when I use that analog stick 
as opposed to the D-pad. So everything controls great, you know, going through the moves list and trying those out. That's one thing I like about the story. It forces you to play and fight as all the different characters at a given point in time. And I enjoy that because it allows me to see their different move sets and maybe find some new characters that I enjoy playing with that I wouldn't have otherwise. So the game starts out, and I mean, I really have only played as Kung Lao and Johnny Cage. And those are really the two main ones. I've only played through those first two chapters. The third chapter is Raiden, but I just haven't started that yet. But I got to say, both characters, I actually really enjoyed both of them. There was a lot of things I liked about them. And obviously, Johnny Cage, he's got that classic moves with the uh, ball breaker and just his classic uh, attitude and everything. I just said uh, Johnny Cage is great. Now, I will say that one thing I always do in every Mortal Kombat game is play the tower mode. And I always play through, at least play through with Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and if he's accessible at the beginning, Reptile. Those are my three top favorite characters. Always have been, probably always will be at this point. So I did play through the tower really quickly, honestly. It didn't take too much time, but I did play as the novice tower, the first tower that's there. But I did play through that to see Scorpion's ending and see what that storyline was for him. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And just in general, it allowed me to experience his combat moves because where I was at in the story, it had not yet allowed you to control him. Now, I will say I was unable to perform any fatalities in the matches that I won in the story mode and a scorpion, even though I was performing the button prompts as it was, you know, quoted there on the screen for the finisher. But it, I just wasn't doing something right. But either way, I didn't get a chance to see any of those or brutalities. So that was a little disappointing. But again, I mean, I literally played maybe two hours. I did the tutorial to try to get my bearings straight with the controls and the format of this game. And then I went straight to the story mode and played that for a little while. And then maybe half an hour for the tower with Scorpion. But I will say the new things that are in the game, the biggest new thing is probably the uh, the, the added characters that are cameo characters is what they call them in this game. And they're actually pretty cool. It's, I mean, kind of think of like a tag team match or it really kind of harkens me back to Tekken Tag Tournament at the launch of the PS2, to be honest with you. But you can uh, press on Xbox. It's the RB button or LB button. It's one of the bumper buttons <laughs> that you can actually summon in one of the characters that you can, in the tower mode, you can choose who you want to be your cameo character. And then in the story mode, obviously, they already have that predetermined. But there is a circle that is the indicator of your cameo character. And around that circle is a meter that as you use the cameo character, it depletes, but it does refill over time. Uh, and you can do different moves. You can summon them in and do either a combo move or a grapple move or all kinds of different stuff you can do with them. I thought that was pretty cool. It wasn't necessarily a, an earth-shattering addition, in my opinion, to the Mortal Kombat formula. But it was interesting. It was something different. So I, I definitely enjoyed uh, anything new that's brought to the table when it comes to the series. Because, I mean, they've been going on for years now and how many games, right? So to keep it fresh, to do anything they can... It, it's not a problem on my part, but didn't do anything groundbreaking for me, in my opinion. So overall, in the little short time that I had to play the game and, and the two hours that I did play, it was a, an enjoyable experience and one that I do look forward to getting back to at some point. And now the next game I want to talk about is the game that I got back to, and that is Daymare 1994 Sandcastle. <laughs> Getting back to Daymare 1994 was always a big goal for me. I 
absolutely loved Daymare 1998 a few years ago when it released. Check out my review to find out how much I actually love this game, despite its technical issues that it had. There was just a lot of homages to pop culture and the Resident Evil franchise and just horror and survival horror in general. And there was just a lot to love there. I absolutely love my time with it. So I was super stoked with Daymare 1994 on the horizon. It did come out at the end of August. The unfortunate timing of that, though, it came out just a few days before early access started for Starfield. So it didn't really give me an opportunity to have a whole lot of time to check the game out before I was just obsessed with Starfield. The thing is, I played maybe an hour before Starfield came out, and that was it. And that was enough to kind of whet my appetite for it and just kind of see what the basic starting point or launching point of the story was going to be. I can't tell you, gamers, that I planned on getting back to it to the level that I did recently. But let me just say that since my last episode, surprisingly, through taking a break from Starfield to try out Lies of P and Mortal Kombat 1, it brought me back to Daymare 1994. And I ended up just obsessing over it and dropping 16 hours in it over the past week. It's actually the most played game that I've played over the past week and a half or so since my last recording. And I got to tell you, I I just, I, I love it. I love this series. I hope it continues. I hope Daymare 1994 Sandcastle is, I guess, as successful, I would say, or even more successful than 98 was, because I would assume 98 had to be a, a, some sort of success for them to be able to green light and, and finance uh, an upgrade in 1994, because that was the thing. As I had stated, there was a lot of limitations on 1998 from a graphical perspective and animations and just all the, just uh, there was a lot there. So to see the enhanced, upgraded, everything is, is better version of 1998, but a different story, a different setting, a different character in 1994 Sandcastle. I mean, it's just, it's been awesome. It is a prequel. I am kind of a glutton for prequels. I know some people hate them, but I don't know. It's just something about knowing what the future holds for the universe or world that you're witnessing before everything happens. I just kind of like having that edge over the characters within the story, whether it's in a game or a movie, a book, a show, it doesn't matter. I don't know. There's just something there about having that edge over those characters and just, oh man, if, if they only knew, if they only knew. So Daymare 94, it obviously is four years before the 1998 game and ironically released four years after 1998 and i like i said it's just they've improved in all levels controls are absolutely top notch i am shocked and, and very excited to share that the controls are so much better than they were in 1998 over the shoulder camera perspective this is kind of like their version of Resident Evil 4. So if Daymare 98 was their version of Resident Evil 2, then this would be their version of Resident Evil 4. So it's much better from a playability standpoint. I mean, the, the action is very smooth. The frame rate runs real well. There was no any issues that I had with frame rate. I mean, it's just an awesome experience. There's all kinds of details that I would love to share with you, but I'm going to hold those details for my review because I am so close to beating the game. It is 17 chapters, and I am... I would say towards the end of chapter 15. So I probably only have a, a couple hours left to finish up the game. So I didn't want to go into too much detail here in this. I just kind of wanted to put out there like gamers, I'm telling you, check the game out if you're a survival horror fan or if you're questionable on it or forgot about it with all these other bigger releases coming out, but you like 1998, I definitely recommend checking it out. But my review with all my detailed thoughts in every category, that's going to be out in a couple weeks. So keep an eye out for that. But man, I uh, absolutely loved my time in Daymare in 1994.
this past week. Now let's go check out my further progress in Starfield. Gamers, over the past week, I was able to drop another six hours into Starfield. And I got to be honest with you, it was, it's kind of weird saying only six hours in this game. Because if you listen to my episode last week, I discussed 34 hours that I had played in it between the last episode and that recording. So for me to only talk about six hours this week, it's like, man. But obviously there was a lot of other games that had released that I've been talking about. And and that's where a lot of that time kind of filtered out. But the six hours, even though it was a lot less than what I had talked about more recently, it was still amazing nonetheless. So that six hours, if you're keeping track with me here, is uh, officially enough to get me over that half century mark. So I am officially at 50 hours played into the game. And the ironic thing about that is to me is, again, still six hours later, I have yet to leave the same star system that I was in and talking about last week. And that is the Tau Centi star system. And if you didn't listen to my episode last week, let me just kind of put it into perspective for you. There are 18 locations, nine moons and nine planets that you can go to land on (laughs) mine for resources, set up bases, interact with enemies, do side quests, look at landmarks. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff to do in each one of these areas. And by the end of my six hours, I will say that I am officially with this, with the star system as a whole, 53% complete after all this time. So after 50 hours, I would say probably 35 to 40 of that is all from this star system. Now, I didn't do as much, uh, obviously in six hours time, there's only so much you can do, but I didn't do as much of a variety of things this past week in Starfield. But Man, I tell you, it was just still an amazing time. And even when I'm away from this game, it's one of those games that just sticks with you. And I am still, I'm almost a week out from having played this game. And it's really kind of bothering me because I loved it that much. It just sits with me the entire day throughout the day. You know, it's one of those games where everything you see kind of reminds you a little bit of it. And even though I've loved the other games and experiences that I've played and had over this past week and a half or so, man, it's still just Starfield is that game. It is that game for me right now, and it kind of worries me because it's so big and so massive, and I got Assassin's Creed Mirage coming up next week, and I know that I've already planned on making that my focal game once it does release. It's supposed to be that shorter experience, so I'm thinking and hoping that, all right, let me get in there with some Assassin's Creed Mirage, play through and complete it, and then get back to Starfield. Oh, but wait, Spider-Man 2 is then going to be out by that point in time. So I also have a vacation in there, which is going to cut back on my playtime. It's perfectly fine. Can't wait to go on vacation and see the fam. Bottom line is, though, I am only going to be able to get so much time in in Starfield. And there is just so much left to do in that Tau Senti system. I mean, 53% and the bulk of my game has been in that system. It's just insane to me. And none of it, not a single second of it, gamers, has been the main quest. It's all been side quests and just exploring and doing other things. The bulk of what I did in that six hours is one thing I'll talk about. It was probably about a third of that time frame in my highlight of the week here next in the next segment. But the other four hours, I would say, a lot of it, it was really kind of mopping up a couple of other planets, getting and scanning all the resources and different flora and fauna in those planets or moons, as well as really just kind of honing in on trying to find the right resources that I needed in order to do research to therefore unlock upgrades at research stations and be able to use those researched upgrades 
to purchase and make those upgrades for my helmet and spacesuit and weapons at their respective workstations throughout the game world. So that was a lot of what I did and just really kind of finding places that were selling the different resources that I needed or uh, planets that had iron. That was really the biggest thing. Iron and I would say probably aluminum are the biggest two resources, at least in this point in time I needed, because a big thing I wanted to do was build more of the storage sheds for each element type so I could keep multiple resources on hand and accessible to me for these different crafting reasons at all times. So overall, just a great time again in those six hours of Starfield. But let's go check out my highlight of the week to see what those final two hours of play really did to warrant being my highlight. Gamers, even though I played a lot of different types of games and a lot of games in general this past week, I got to tell you the the highlight of the week still goes back for me to Starfield. An experience I had at the very end of my play session, the final two hours as I referred to it in the play discussion that I talked about just a few minutes ago. And that final two hours took me to one of the Tau Centi moons. Like I said, there are 18 locations to go here between planets and moons. And one of the moons that I went to as I was just kind of progressing through the system, I was exploring and I came across this unknown structure uh, up to a point. And then when I got to it, it was this abandoned cryo research facility. There was only one entrance to the place. There was two different access points, one which was completely blocked off due to electrical being completely severed as far as the wires and whatnot were concerned. So I could only access it through uh, an entry point uh, via stairs in the other building. And as I went into this uh, stairwell and I got to the bottom, there was yet another elevator to take me even further deep into the depths of this moon. And when I got out of the elevator at the bottom of that shaft and it emptied out into this tunnel immediately I was drawn into what I was about to experience because for me at this point in the game I don't know if there's anything like this in the rest of the game maybe there are I know there are uh, repeating locations buildings you know some of them are the same exact layouts and whatnot throughout the course of the game on different planet systems whatnot this is the first time I've encountered this layout in the game and for me it was just amazing so as i stated it's a cryo research facility and beings that cryo is about frozen things and, and keeping things to that temperature literally gamers the entire facility that was underground was kind of taken over by ice so there's these ice stalactites and stalagmites periodically throughout there's walls covered in ice the floor snow all kinds of stuff like that you have uh, unfortunately, the, the dead bodies of the people and the scientists and researchers who are working here. And it's kind of sad because you're reading the story as you go along through different uh, personal logs and journals and whatnot that there was uh, a known issue here. There was some piping uh, that was not stable. And the uh, basically, this was brought to the attention of the upper brass and nobody did anything about it. Nobody cared to do anything about it. They just pretty much had to shut up and get back to work. And ultimately, uh, it, it was catastrophic, the outcome. You know, the pipes burst and everybody ended up freezing and stuck down there. Well, it obviously, it, it became a home to just kind of looting raiders and whatnot that go, space pirates 
as well as some other mechanized beings that are down there. But the bottom line is, as I was exploring this environment, I just love the visuals of it. And I love the story, again, that was there. If you listen to me, you know that I love story and the environment, uh, storytelling through journal entries and documents and whatnot to kind of give this backstory of an environment. Because, I mean, to be honest with you, what is an environment without the backstory to it, right? It's just kind of like this uh, shell that you're walking through. So to give that context to the environment is is always important to me. And this was no different, this abandoned cryo research center. So I absolutely loved it. It was a very unique so far uh, environment that I got to explore. And man, I just, it, it sent chills down my spine, the enjoyment that I got from exploring this area. So that was this week's highlight of the week. Now it's that time, it's actually past time, gamers, to check in on my trophy level progress and my gamer score quest goals. If you have been listening to the show for a long time, you know that once a month I kind of update you on where I'm at. I give myself a goal every month in trophy level and gamer score quest progress. So first up, let's see how I did with my goal that I gave for myself going into this month for trophy level progress. Gamers, it's been a while since I have last updated you on my trophy level progress and gamer score quests. Honestly, it's been a little bit too long because typically I've been very good the entire length of my show about updating you pretty much on the money month to month. Well, man, there's just been a lot going on with some changes at the job and different things that just kind of made me lose my focus, if you will. So I'm a little bit later getting to these updates. So therefore, my results will be a little bit skewed from what the goals were. So I'm not going to necessarily, if I were to say, reach the goal that I had given to myself and where I'm at currently right now at the time of recording, if I had reached that goal, I'm not going to give myself credit for it. I just don't think that's fair because I honestly did not beat or accomplish that goal at the time or within the time frame that I had given myself. So we're starting here with trophy level progress. I had given myself a goal of reaching trophy level 240 by the time of this recording or the what was supposed to be the right timing. Either way, at the time that I gave myself the goal of reaching trophy level 240, I was currently sitting at trophy level 238, 93% to trophy level 239. So obviously a goal for 239 was way too easy not doing that. So was I able to do it though? Well, I did unlock 16 bronze trophies, 7 silver, and 2 gold over the course of time. Was that enough to get me to trophy level 240? Well, gamers, it was. I reached trophy level 240, and I'm 40% complete to trophy level 241. The best part about that is I did, in fact, reach that goal within the accurate, correct time frame that I had given myself to reach that goal. So... Very successful with my trophy level progress, so I'm super excited about that. With that being the case, I am going to give myself a new trophy level goal by the end of October. So October 31st or even November 1st, we'll give it till by midnight, October 31st of reaching trophy level 241. I feel like it's a good possibility that even though it's on the 20th that the Spider-Man 2 releases... I feel like in those 11 days, I should be able to get 60% worth of trophies to get to that trophy level 241, but we'll see. Check back next month. Hopefully, I'll be on time with it, and we'll see what I do with that. Now, let's go check out my gamer score quest and see how I fared in it.
Admittedly, this past month has been very much Xbox focused. I have played the most Xbox in this past month or so than I have played in a very, very long time. And I thoroughly have enjoyed my time on the console. Now, as of my last Gamer Score Quest update, my Gamer Score was 295,217. And I have given myself a goal of reaching 296,000 in the correct time frame. So I did unlock, since that last recording, 50 achievements for a total of 1,025, 1025, 1,025 gamer score in this past month or so, bringing me to a total gamer score of 296,242. So I was able to reach that goal of 296,000. The problem is, did I do that within the allotted time frame? The answer, gamers, is no, I did not reach. 296,000 in the allotted time. So I'm not going to give myself credit for reaching this, which sucks because for the longest time, I feel like it's always recently in the last couple of years been Xbox that I don't reach my goals because I don't usually play a lot of Xbox here in these last two years. And now when I do, it's just the timing is skewed. But regardless, the truth is the truth. So given that I'm currently sitting at 296,242, I'm going to go ahead and give myself a goal of reaching a gamer score of 297,000 by the end of October. Now, I know I had said, obviously, Spider-Man 2 is coming on the 20th of October, and I'll have that right there in those last 11 days to potentially take my focus away from the Xbox side of things. But leading up to that point, I still am playing other games on Xbox. Every other game I'm playing, whether it's Mirage, whether it's going to be dabbling in Alan Wake 2 when it comes out on the 27th of October. There's also other games that I've talked about on this episode that I will probably be dabbling back in before Mirage. So I will have opportunity to get another 758 gamer score. Hopefully I'll be able to do that. Again, check back next month to see if I was successful. Now let's go check out this month's Buried Treasure gaming tips I have for you in Daymare 1994 Sandcastle. Gamers, this week it's a pretty straightforward tip I have for you in Daymare, and it's one that hopefully will allow you to avoid the massive amount of frustration that I endured on the final boss in the game. So I'm not going to say anything spoiler-wise, so don't worry about that. But I will just tell you some key tips so that you do not waste your time as I did <laughs> on this fight. So first off, this is not a fight about how fast you can inflict as much damage as possible. And once you hit that invisible threshold of whatever the amount of damage that you need to inflict is, the boss fight's over, you're, you win, you're successful. It is not that kind of boss fight. So it is somewhat unique in the way that you actually have to avoid conflict with this boss and in so doing it's really really frustrating because this boss has a kind of a dash and grab move and when the boss does that it grabs you you do the whole button mashing to get out of a grapple like you do with regular enemies in the game but in this case at the end of it you don't break free you get squeezed harder and teleported back to the beginning of a certain location and let me just say that you have to make it through three sections without being teleported back to the beginning 
in order to be successful in this fight. And it is absolutely infuriating because there are certain gates that are doors that you have to press a button in order to open the gate, but they're on a time delay. So you have to wait anywhere from five to 10 seconds for these doors to finally open and you to gain access to the next area the whole time trying to avoid this boss as well as regular cannon fodder enemies that they summon in to make life even more annoying for you. So this boss fight was absolutely frustrating. All I can tell you is first off, just know that it's not about going into an area and just wasting every single piece of ammo that you have. That's not what this is about. I will recommend doing spurts of your frost grip to slow down the, the main boss and still shoot and fire because after a certain point, the boss can be stunned and sit there for a few seconds, which if you're especially waiting for the door to open, that is the perfect time to do that. And it is extremely helpful to do so. I'd also recommend using the shotgun over the assault rifle because the shotgun obviously deals a whole lot of more punch of damage at once than that assault rifle and can stun the boss that much quicker. So in combination with the frost grip to slow it down, pow, pow, pow with the shotgun, I would also recommend as soon as you get into a new area where you see the door and the switch that you have to press to open the door, I would immediately try to go as fast as you can to that switch and press it so that obviously the, the time overall that you're spending in this area is as minimal as possible. So run into an area, press that button, and then try to avoid that grapple move by the boss by utilizing your frost grip to slow it down, shotgun blasts to stagger it, and proceed into the next area and do this rinse and repeat for two more sections. Once you get past that third section, you're good to go. Man, it was very frustrating, I'll tell you that, but hopefully those tips will alleviate some of the frustration that you may have had otherwise. Now let's go check out this week's Captain's Decree. Gamers, this week on Captain's Decree, I'm gonna look at the Xbox leaks and just really question are they going to be something that is looked at as being harmful to Xbox in the long run? You know, does this give an extra edge or advantage to Sony knowing what the future of Xbox possibly could be or would have been to kind of give them an idea of where Xbox may be heading for their future? Also, is it going to be bad PR as far as, oh man, you know, Xbox was actually looking at buying Nintendo. How dare they? You know, from us gamers in the community, is it going to be a thing to where it's a, a massive detriment to their image? In my opinion, ultimately, I don't think so to either. I don't think Xbox really has anything to worry about from either of these things because even though they did entertain the idea, or at least Phil Spencer did, about acquiring Nintendo... It's not something that is actually going to be a serious pursuit on their part, at least as far as I can tell, based on what we've read and just in general, I really don't see that as something that will ever happen, to be quite clear. So as far as the PR and the gaming community and, and everybody being upset with Xbox and how dare they, eh, you know, maybe that initial reaction, sure, I did see that. But, I mean, honestly, it was kind of one of those, you know, 15 minutes of fame type things where it was there for the first couple of days, maybe after the news broke. But after that, nobody really cares anymore. So, you know, ultimately, I don't think it's going to be something anybody holds against Xbox for the future. Now, obviously, that's not to be said about any of the other potential third-party acquisitions they may 
looking at doing. Obviously, I do know there are some sensitive third-party acquisition possibilities out there as far as Square Enix and Sega and companies like that. But that's a different conversation, and that's not even anything that uh, has any validity to it at this point in time. Now, when it comes to Sony, and do they have an edge, or is this going to benefit them and, and hurt Xbox? As far as the Sony versus Microsoft situation is concerned, Personally, like I said, I don't think so. I really do feel like Xbox and PlayStation, as much as publicly, they kind of go back and forth. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that they each individually want to outdo the other. I'm not saying that they don't. Uh, That's just kind of, I think, a basic human feeling and and reaction and desire when you have somebody who is considered competition. You want to outdo your competition. I get that. But at the end of the day, these guys are behind closed doors. I feel like they actually are pretty decently communicated between each other. And not that they know all the ins and outs of what each other plans are on doing. I'm not saying that. But I feel like there's already a pretty general idea of where the technology is going and some specifics, I think, that each company plans on doing with their next console. Now, at the end of the day, I don't really feel like PlayStation looks at what Xbox does with their consoles and says, okay, we're going to change what we do to match what they do. I don't feel that I've ever seen that in the last two generations, PS4 and now PS5. I honestly believe I have not seen anything that Xbox has done that PlayStation has said, yeah, we got to do that. And the biggest thing that would have happened with that would have been PlayStation doing their version of Game Pass, having their first party games released day and date, especially with the amount of outcry and just people clamoring and calling for that to happen when PlayStation announced they were going to restructure PlayStation Plus and add these tiered programs. You know, Sony could have very easily caved and folded to that uh, controversy. But they didn't. I, I respect them for that. They held strong and they said, that's just not our business model. Like it doesn't make sense for us to do that. So we're not going to do that. So that right there kind of tells me that they don't really, uh, not that they don't care what Xbox is doing, obviously, but that they're not going to allow what Xbox does or doesn't do dictate what they do or don't do. So I don't think that it's really going to harm Xbox at all. You know, obviously I do feel that there is a good amount of validity to a lot of the stuff that was leaked in these emails. I do believe that we probably will get a mid-gen console next year. I think that it probably will be pretty much what we've seen from these two leaked systems. If not, you know, maybe a little bit change between those emails a couple years ago until when they potentially release next year. But it just makes sense. I mean, we've had a generation console upgrade for the last few generations. I mean, if not every generation of gaming, think about it. Even back in the Nintendo and Super Nintendo, there were different models of those same consoles released years into their life cycle. So it's just always been kind of a common business practice for home consoles, in my opinion. So I see that still happening. As far as the specifics of the features and things like that, that I don't know. A lot of that may change, uh, dictated by time. Again, I really hope we do see that upgraded controller. I'm very excited about that. But at the end of the day, I don't think these leaks are going to be a negative thing for Xbox. If anything, in my opinion, uh, when I and I include myself on this, if anything, I think these are actually a positive thing for Xbox and driving what I would consider some hype and excitement for the future of the brand.
That'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by reaching out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. You can also find me on social media on Instagram and Reels at Lost at Sea Gaming, as well as on Twitter at Lost at Sea, G-A-M-I-N, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing.